Hello, and welcome to PwC's Accounting and Reporting Podcast Series. Our mission is to inform and educate accountants and other stakeholders on today's most important accounting issues. I'm Heather Horn, a partner in our national office, and I'll be your host today. In today's episode, we're turning our attention to risks and uncertainties, going beyond the balance sheet to look at the broader economic environment. I'm happy to welcome Chris Benko, a managing director who serves as PwC's senior economic advisor. Chris regularly meets with firm leadership, client executives, and external audiences to share his perspectives and points of view. I've hosted Chris at a few other events, and I'm looking forward to a lively discussion. So Chris, thanks so much for joining us today. Before we get into any specific economic risk, could you just spend a few minutes giving us some background on what you're seeing with the U.S. economy and I guess how it's going? Sure. Um, thank you for having me. It's I'm going to say it's a confusing time for the economy, but it's 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 never not a confusing time for the economy. We are at a bit of a crossroads, though, in terms of where things could go. If you go back to the old, you know, the macro 101, there's supply and demand. Demand gets all the attention these days, and it always seems to, right? Because it's interesting, consumption and government spending and business spending and trade. But really, sort of the, the major influence right now on the macro economy in the U.S. is on the supply side, which no one ever really wants to talk about. But it is what's going to exert influence over how fast we can really expect to grow over the next couple of years. And the reality is the U.S. is now a 2% economy, whereas most of us are used to this being a 3% economy. But, but since the Great Recession 10 years ago, things have changed. And it's not because of the recession necessarily, but we have we have seen a lot of capacity that we used to have not there. And it's because we have lower productivity growth and lower labor force growth. So there's been a lot of talk about we're going to get this to be a 4% growth economy, a 5% growth economy. The reality is we're not going to get this to be a 3% growth economy. It's really a a 2% growth economy. It's not exciting, but it could continue on a sustainable basis for a long time. Uh, The issue, though, is we've been running a little bit above that for the last year or so. And that presents some risks to the downside then. So before we get into the risks, I have one question. You said that change wasn't really caused by the Great Recession, but did it send us down a different trajectory? Is that why well, kind of 2% instead of 3%? It did. If you look at you know what defines the, the speed limit for growth is, is just how fast is labor force growing and how fast is productivity growing. You add those two growth rates together and that gives you the speed limit. So on the demographic side, there's not much you can do about that. I mean, it's, it's a baby boomer issue. It's, you know, it's partly an immigration issue, but we're seeing almost no growth in the size of the workforce right now, and we don't expect to see that. The productivity side is where we had hoped to see a lot more growth coming, and that comes from previous business investments. So the extent that businesses have not really invested the way we would like to have seen since the recession it has never really come back, and that then doesn't translate into future productivity growth. And that's what would allow us to grow faster, but we haven't seen that. So some of that is probably influenced by the recession. But we've never been really confident about the, the stability of growth. So interestingly enough, by June of this year, this will be, assuming nothing falls off the cliff in the next couple of weeks, this will be the longest expansion in U.S. history since before the Civil War. Wow. It's also been the weakest. So the fact that it has been very slow growth, in one, that makes sense because we are a 2% growth economy now. So this is normal. 
but it also gives a lot of pause to to businesses about making those investments. And since we've not seen that, and, and people have been hesitant coming out of the recession, we've not seen investment grow the way we'd like to see it. So that's you can begin to tie that back to sort of the, the psychology of the economy. So one question also on productivity then, was technology supposed to kind of bump up productivity and we just didn't see that and that's why we need other investment? It, or It sure was. And that is, if there is an issue among economists that cause bar fights, it is why has technology not translated? That's a great picture, isn't yes, it? Yes, I was just thinking yeah. exactly it's that. It's not pretty. You don't want to get in the middle of it. it it's, why has not all this technology not translated? into faster productivity growth. And there are competing schools of thought, and it's probably a little bit of each. Technology takes a long time to become adopted and, and really get the benefit from that. So that's one. If you think about electricity, it, you know, it took decades for that to actually translate into a stronger economy across, across the full economy. So there's still hope for this technology thing. The other thing is a lot of the technology you're seeing are not things that get monetized. Right. Right? I mean, it's, our lives are different. We can do 15 different things at once, but we're not monetizing that. Uh, technology has also been a big influence on inflation, right? I mean, it's held down inflation um, for lots of reasons. I mean, it's part of, you know, the, the Amazons of the world and, the, you know, the, the new platform strategies. But, you know, we, we capture growth by, you know, how our price is increasing. And you're not seeing that right. as well. Um, so there's probably a whole a host of reasons of why that's not happening. And there's still, there's still hope. And we're actually at the very beginning now of this whole new fourth industrial revolution, emerging technologies, and that's going to disrupt and change things. But will we see faster productivity growth? We don't know. We mm, certainly hope so. Question. And it's a global issue. I mean, it, it, you know, the world is aging for the most part. And this productivity slowdown, especially in developed markets, is, it's not a U.S. phenomenon. It's happening all around the world. So maybe we're counting on the millennials to... Uh to bring us the productivity Whatever growth. it takes. <laughs> there you go. So, okay, well, let's turn back then. You started talking about risks. Mm-hmm. And other than, obviously, we just talked about technology, but maybe can we go to monetary policy? I know there's been a lot sure. of discussion around that. Yes. So we started talking about this speed limit about a year ago. And the other thing that's going on with the speed limit is that we had, you know, the economy has fallen so much after the great recession, that it was there was this large output gap between what we could grow and what we were growing. Mm-hmm. We finally closed that gap about a year ago, right? Not for the right reason, not because we were growing so fast, but because the speed limit was slower. Once you get above that gap, though, things it's not sustainable. Things happen. Policy changes, um, natural business cycle things kick in, inventory, whatever it is. But we don't stay above that speed limit for long. We were concerned that monetary policy was going to be the trigger for the next downturn, right? Uh, up until a few weeks ago, and now the Fed has paused, right? Now, right or wrong, you know, they, they don't see the inflation coming through. Uh, so as interested as they are in normalizing rates, and we're nowhere close to what rates have historically been, but we may be very close to neutral, which means, you know, about where they should be, where they're not slowing growth or speeding growth up, but they're nowhere close to where they used to be. So the risk for monetary policy is not so much the Fed has over-tightened, because they, they probably haven't at this point. Um, and now they've said, we're, we're going to slow down, we're going to back off, we're going to wait and see what happens. So in the you know November, December frame, we were like, the, you know, the trigger is going to be over-tightening, because the Fed is, is as much as respect as they have for them. They're three for 13 out of sticking the soft landing, right? So there's always, and it's not always their fault, but the track record's not great. Right, and they were 
motioning that they were going to move yes, in that direction. Yes, and we, were going to, we want to keep on going because what, what they wanted to get was policy bandwidth. They wanted to get rates as high as the economy could withstand, not too much, but as high as it could withstand so when the next downturn comes, they could cut rates. So right now we're barely over 2 2.5%. Two yeah, there's not much room to cut. There's not much there. Yeah. You know, real rates are just at above zero right now. And in most when, when the Fed starts to say we need to now stimulate growth, they usually cut by about 500 basis points. So we only have half of that right now. So the concern now is not that they've over-tightened. The concern now is how much policy bandwidth do they have to, to actually cut if things do get, get soft. And the other thing that's very much in the news right now monetary policy is the inverted yield curve, right? So short and long rates, they should be different. They're not now, right? I mean, they're very, it's very flat and even inverted in different places of the yield curve. That's a reliable predictor of recession. It doesn't cause recessions necessarily. Things may be a little different right now. So it has very much raised a lot of attention. Like, are we about to go into recession? I think we need to be careful. Things could be different this time because the Fed coming out of the Great Recession, not only did it keep short-term rates low, very low, but it also started doing quantitative easing, right, where it was now affecting the long end of, of the rate. So as they were winding down, you started to get some some influence in the long end as well. So this is not necessarily inverted to say we're about to tip in. And you usually see a couple of month inversion before you get worried. And usually a predictor, you know, six to 12 months out. So it's not the world is ending. But it's, it is, a, is there questions? So then do you think with the Fed's most recent action, do you expect that to impact the yield curve so it's going to go back to, quote, normal? Well, I mean, so here's – you got to want – like, how do you get to a, a upward sloping right. yield curve, right? Like, what do you want to have happen? Well, if the Fed cuts rates so that the short end goes lower, that tells you that they don't see growth coming. And they're now trying to get ahead of a downturn or they've already seen some softness. That's not great. That's not great because the long end – Part of what they do is they build in some expectation of future inflation and future growth, and that's supposed to be part of what goes into a long rate. If if the long end, which is determined in the marketplace, sees the Fed cutting, that's not going to give a lot of confidence. So rates could go lower, even still, but not necessarily steeper. And then if you say, well, let's what? How do we get the longer end of the yield curve up if the Fed stays where they are? Some things could happen, right? I mean, there's a fiscal policy risk around that. But do you really want to see that happen either? Because if it does, higher rates means costs more to borrow. It hurts mortgages. It hurts the housing sector, which is already a concern. A little soft, yeah. Business investment, like we talked about, that's going to make the hurdle rates even higher. So there's no real easy way out of this flat or inverted yield curve right now that doesn't have some other repercussions. Exactly. So you mentioned fiscal policy. Anything else from a fiscal policy perspective, like from a risk perspective? Yeah, this this is an interesting fiscal policy situation, right? So fiscal policy is is usually, I mean, this is government spending, right? And this is usually meant to be counter-cyclical. I mean, the government, it's meant to be a stabilizer. When things get soft, the government spends a little more. It's supposed to cushion the downside. And then when things are going well, you, you you work the deficit down, you cut spending a little bit, you try to even things out. That's not at all what we did in the last two years, right? We actually stimulated growth through fiscal policy at a very late cycle, mm-hmm. right? Sort of at the top of the cycle. It wasn't a huge cycle, but the top of the cycle. And that's counter to everything that we've ever done before. So what it did was, you know, the assessment at the time was this is going to stimulate growth, but it will be short-lived. 
it will be like a sugar high or like, you know, squirting kerosene on the grill, right? It flames and then it, it goes back down again. And then there are long-term implications of that, like a higher deficit and having to spend, you know, how to issue bonds and to be able to spend that money. to so Right, you drive to finance it. it. So if you look at what has happened, that's exactly what happened. We got a, a quick hit to growth last year. It started winding down as the year went on, as predicted. That will completely fade this year, most likely. But now we're living with the higher deficit. So, so far, that has not really impacted rates, right? So the more supply that goes out there on the fiscal side, you know, the more supply there is that's going to drive the, the price down. And if the price goes down, the rates are going to go up on a bond. We haven't seen that, really. I mean, it's, it's a little bit, but not much. So to one extent, that's, that's good, but you don't, you don't really know. Right. So then how does tax reform fit in with that? So tax reform, there was a, there was a, here is a real hope of what we get out of tax reform was on the corporate side, right? right? Investment, right? Back full circle to what we were just talking about. That's exactly what we hoped, right? right? So if you look at the profit numbers, the profits were huge last year, you know? I mean, if you look at pre-tax and after tax, you know, the the pre-tax numbers were about what you thought, but after tax, they were, they were huge because, so the hope was this would turn into more business spending, and that would then drive the productivity number higher, and we, and it just didn't happen. We did not see businesses really invest the way that we had hoped that they would have invested. I mean, they really weren't that much higher last year than they were coming out of the you know the oil price situation in 2014, so in 2015. So we didn't really get that. And I guess that's back to the fact that they see softening, or they're not sure what's going to happen, exactly. and so that so, everyone's just holding back. So the question is, where did all that money go? Right. Well, it went to. I mean, it goes to a couple of places, right? But one of the things that's interesting, if you look at the S&P 500, they spent about $600 billion on CapEx last year. They spent about $800 billion on stock buybacks last year. So, you know... They're they're just driving their stock As you sit there, you say, well, how should I spend my money? I don't have the investments that I think we're going to get the return on. But boy, this would be a great time to put this money to work. Right. On, the, on the capital structure side, right? And that's what happened. So, yes, is the U.S. corporate rate more competitive now? Absolutely, right? Did we hope that it was going to drive investment higher? Yes. And did it not the way that, that we had hoped? Interesting. So then, I guess, related hot topic would be trade and how that is playing into that. Because obviously, continual discussions and you know, yeah, trade, what's coming with that. Trade's the wild card. Right. I mean, it, and it's, it's really about more than trade. I mean, this is about a complete, the beginning unwinding of the way that the global economy worked. Right. And it's, it's sort of the U.S. taking a very different place in the world, you know, a much more unilateral place in the world, you know, and challenging the institutions that worked. And trade has sort of gotten itself in the middle of that. You know, anything that throws sand into the gears in the economy is not helping it grow. And, and you know, tariffs... Clearly, are, are not helping, right. right? And tariffs don't get paid by countries; they get paid by companies, and companies that either comes out of profit margins or it gets passed along to consumers. I mean, it, it, it comes out of businesses that are doing business, and it it doesn't help with sentiment either. So you're already starting to see manufacturing starting to feel some of the pain of that. And it's not only because of that, but it's not helping on the manufacturing side. And quite frankly, focusing on a bilateral trade deficit in today's economy doesn't really make a lot of sense. So you have to look at that as sort of a means to an end from a leverage perspective to rewrite the rules of how the global economy works. And we're in the middle of that. And it's, you know, it's U.S. and China right now. But, 
you know, pretty quickly. And that probably gets resolved with, with tariffs kind of come back over time. I mean, they're wound down over time, you know, maybe not immediately because they may be part of the compliance. But we've sort of accepted that. And, you know, but it's, it's much more about what do the broader relationships look like and, and where do these other trading partners fit in? I mean, what, what happens with Europe and China? What happens with Japan and China? What happens with the U.S. and Europe and the U.S. and Japan? So this is sort of just the end of the, it's not even the end of the beginning. It's sort of almost the end of the beginning because this will play out for a very long time between the U.S. and China. And as soon as we get some resolution here, the U.S. turns its sight on, on Europe and then Japan. And we're talking about more tariffs on cars and Section 232 tariffs and all kinds of things. So it's, it's, a, very, it's a very disturbed time right now and all of that. Trade gets all the attention in terms of globalization. But the other side of that is foreign direct investment. You know, companies that are headquartered somewhere investing money somewhere else in their global operations or entering a market. So that's taking a hit too. So trade is certainly down. But the numbers for last year came in for global foreign direct investment, and they, they dropped significantly. They were down 40% from the year before. And, and that's investments into the U.S. or just It's investments anywhere? from any country going somewhere outside. Else. Okay. Right? And if you add all of that up, we're looking at a level of foreign direct investment globally that is the same as it was at the bottom of the recession 10 years so ago. So everyone's keeping their so assets everyone's close like, at hand. Close at hand, right? So if you go back to the PwC CEO survey... The thing that was interesting this year wasn't so much that it's usually split. Like you usually get executives saying, I'm concerned about overall growth, but I'm cool with how we're positioned. Like we're going to do fine at the expense of everybody else. This year it's like we're concerned about growth and we're concerned about our own business too. And we're not quite sure we want to spend our our money outside of our home country. So, you know, if you look at where is the money going to go, the answers were, I don't know, was the top response because there's just a this this sort of this well we're going to wait and see we're going to put our heads down and we're going to see how things shake out so it's back to no or less investment so the issue becomes that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy if every business steps back and says we're not going to invest that then hits the demand side right so that's the concern that the the investment just isn't there and that's you know that's a global issue as well so one of the things we've talked about on past webcasts, podcasts, Brexit, obviously, mm-hmm. how does that factor in? I know it's one country, but it's causing a lot of disruption. So And and symptomatic of the, the broader issue, right? I mean, you're seeing a world of sort of global divergence from a governance perspective. I mean, global governance isn't working really well right now. And that opens the door for populism and nationalism and sovereignty is all of those things. So it's it's emblematic of what's going on. You're right. You know, in the whole scheme of the size of the global economy, that is not, you know, that doesn't really move the needle. But if you if you look at the margin for error that we have anywhere, it's not great. And, you know, so the margin for error at a 2% economy is much less than a 3%. And you look at where the UK is and all of its established relationships and how businesses have make decisions about and, and make investments. And you look at Europe, which has really had a hard time coming back for the last couple of years. And now it looks like Italy's in recession, Germany's teetering. And you have all that investment that went out of England. So So anything that, you know, it's a a very fragile equilibrium. You know, does the world crumble if Brexit? Probably not, but it just makes it harder for everybody. So any other points or final thoughts that you want to make for our listeners? There's one other thing that's going on, right? So if you take, I mean, that's one piece of the operating environment. The other piece is what's going on at the company level. And the other thing that we are watching is this tremendous concentration of power 
with market leaders, where one or two companies are controlling a quarter of all the sector revenue growth or 30% of all the sector growth, and they control all of or a large majority of the cash that they have on hand. So it's the winner, it's a winner take almost all sort of environment taking place. So that creates a whole new competitive dynamic, right, where there's concentration of power. And it's almost, if you think about, you know, the election issue of income inequality for, for households and consumers, it's, it's the same similar bifurcation in, at the corporate level as well, right? Yeah, where the big got, are getting bigger. The big are getting yeah. bigger. They're capturing all the growth. You look at, you know, where is the revenue growth coming from sector by sector, the top five companies in six out of nine sectors are, are capturing most of the growth, more than 50, 50% or more of the growth. So you're just seeing more and more consolidation. And that's, you know, that creates some tension. And the, the piece that goes with that is the corporate leverage piece, which in aggregate is not a huge number. But you look at the concentration of it and you look at the quality of it, and it begins to get a little concerning because it's, a, you know, if you think about how is the, the bonds that are being sold, right, for the, for the you know, there's, they're, they're triple B rated bonds. So there's 40% of all the corporate debt right now is triple B rated. That's one step above junk. That's the last wrong on investment grade. If you slip into junk, you, you know, you, you lose a market for buyers. I mean, pension funds can't go into, there are a lot of, you, you just can't do that. The concern is a lot of this growth has been driven by acquisitions that were debt fueled, you know, at triple B rated sources. So as things have defaulted and been downgraded, the risk now is in a two percent economy. What happens if we had planned for a three percent economy and we're not getting the growth to pay for these things, or anybody defaults and, and trips this up? That's we don't see debt as you know the trigger for the next recession, but if things get really soft. We see that as possibly, you know, exacerbating what happens in the softness. And that then begins to put a lot of companies into play and a lot of things that, you know, we think are stable right now are not. And these are big, these are big companies. So then you're talking about more instability. Right. Right. So then the last thing I throw that in is the beginning of the fourth industrial revolution, right? All these new technologies that are coming that are, that you've got existing companies are trying to remake their business models around this technology. You've got, the, you know, startups with the technology, that are you know trying to establish their own foothold. That's the very beginning of decades-long emerging technology change through this. So if you're navigating a company right now, you're concerned about you know what's going on around me, you know what's going on in my own strategy, and what's going on from a technology perspective, and what my competitors are doing. And it's a, it's it's a lot for executives to think about right now. Yeah. So I was just thinking, you know, it's always interesting to talk to you. Little bit negative sometimes to talk to oh, you. Oh, <laughs> smile. It's forewarned is forearmed. Yeah, so right? they can only hear you. Hopefully, they can hear your smile. But um, it is where there's sort of the potential upside is with this fourth absolutely um, revolution and looking at technology and who can adopt faster, better, first, etc. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's you know if you think about if you go back to Brexit in Europe and the trade. You know, you're talking about reorganizing how the world works with, you know, and it's organized by trade deals and all kinds of other things right now. And that's getting a lot of pressure. The four IR technologies have the, the capacity to reorganize how economies get ordered and the way societies get ordered. Right. And if you think about those with the technology skills and those without the technology skills and it's, you know, tremendous opportunity. I mean, we will be doing things in the near term that we can't even imagine right now, which we will not know how we lived without right? However, if you think about the impact that globalization had, if you go back 20 years, 30 years, 
And that's really how we got to this point, right? The, the, the pressures of globalization. Globalization is categorically a good thing. But there are, you know, there are consequences to it. It changes things. And the world really did not do a great job of cushioning the downside of that, right? Of retraining people who lost their jobs when the factory closed in the factory town and went to another market. That's the way economies work. And, you know, you, that's the way economies evolve and grow, and you should promote that. But you also have to provide for the safety net and the retraining and the redeployment and the mobility to go to these. 4IR will do that the same way, but it will do it faster, and it will do it in not just goods manufacturing. It will do it in services, and it will do it and, it, and it won't be the factory towns. I mean, it is broad swaths of society that will be affected. And it's every, this is now a very global revolution. You know, it's not like... The first revolutions that were largely concentrated and spread over time. This is so accelerating. So it will. There's a lot of change coming to that, and that's you know tremendous upside, but it needs to be navigated very carefully. So it sounds like that is a topic for another podcast. I'll have to. I will have to have you back. But so, Chris, like I said, not always the most positive, but very always interesting to talk to you. And I think it will be interesting to see over the next six months, year, you know, what comes next. And uh, definitely would like to have you back. So thank you. Thank you. To our listeners, I hope that you learned as much as I did from this discussion with Chris. I encourage you to check out our global CEO survey on pwc.com for additional perspectives. Please join me here again next week when we turn our attention back to quarterly reporting issues. I'll be interviewing PwC Director and Debt Classification Specialist Suzanne Stefani to discuss the most frequently asked questions regarding balance sheet classification of debt, including an update on the status of the FASB project. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe to our podcast series on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you find your content. And we'd love to hear from you, so please leave us a review. For PwC, I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.